acknowledge the connectedness and the the thin little silver thread that we're each hanging by, you know, that at any moment we could lose someone we love. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. Because it'll teach you what my dad always taught me, that failure is just opportunity in disguise. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back. We've got the legendary Kenny Loggins with us today, and he does not disappoint. If you're around my age, you know this man's music. Actually, if you're any age, you probably know it. Kenny Loggins is an American singer, songwriter, and guitarist. He recorded seven albums with Jim Messina as Loggins and Messina. As a solo artist, Kenny had a string of soundtrack successes, leading him to be known as the king of the movie soundtrack. His soundtrack contributions date back all the way to the 1976 version of A Star is Born. He talks a little bit about that. He won a Daytime Emmy Award, two Grammy Awards, and was nominated for an Academy Award for Footloose, a Tony Award, and a Golden Globe Award. But on top of all that, I was giddy to sit down with Kenny because he had hit songs in two movies that were truly on a loop for me and my friends in college, Top Gun and Caddyshack. And if that's not enough... When I met him, he was knee-deep in some real mentoring, not the kind for PR, truly inspiring kids. We talk a little bit about that, too. And that was through, I have to give her a shout-out for facilitating this interview, Janet Adderley, who has taught not only my kids how to act, how to conduct themselves in the theater, but so many kids over multiple generations, including stars like Tony Award winner Ben Platt, through the Adderley Schools in Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, and Kenny's hometown of Santa Barbara. I'd like to remind you, if you haven't already, to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps the show. And I want to remind you also, on behalf of today's sponsor, to spray the bowl with poopery before you take a poop, because that may not help our show, but it'll help your household. Trust me, it has done wonders for mine. All you got to do You spray the bowl before you go, and a layer of essential oils traps bathroom odor before it begins. It is guaranteed, people. Guaranteed. Do you know what that means? This is a big guarantee. It's available in a variety of scents and sizes so that every bathroom is stocked. And they also have a new hand sanitizer. It's a moisturizing blend of coconut and lavender. Kills 99.9% of germs in 15 seconds. 15 seconds. Yep. 10% of profits are being donated to Texas charities and additional quantities are being donated to medical professionals in need. I think that is pretty cool of poopery to do. And you are 10,000 Nose listeners. So all you've got to do is use the code DELNEGRO15 for 15% off your order of $25 or more on poopery.com at checkout. That is DELNEGRO15. All right. So grateful for the sponsorship. So grateful that all of your houses are going to smell better. But for now, we've got the great Kenny Loggins in our house. And he's not stinking it up. One thing I wanted to start with with you is I met you last year up in in Santa Barbara. Uh, It was the 35th anniversary of 
Footloose and you were mentoring these kids from Adderley, which is the theater program that my son does here in uh, Pacific Palisades. And, and the one, the joy that I saw in your, in what you were doing, mentoring. And then in addition to that, the, the giving back that you've done in your community. And I spoke to a few people that day and they just talked about what you did with the mudslides and what you've done with the community and the theater. I I just want to point that out and kind of ask you about when that started, that, that using your star power to give back, because I think it's awesome. And there are so many things to talk to you about, but I'd rather spend time on the real man behind it than all of the, you know, the Oscar nominations, the Grammy wins, all of that stuff is the bling. But what I'm really impressed with is just this guy who's like, I love music. I want to help kids. And and those kids, by the way, were awesome. Like I, I was so blown away by that and by how they interacted with you. So let's just start there and we'll let's see where it goes. Right. <laughs> Well, um, the the part of your question about when did it start? You know, it's been it's been part of my nature to um, want to get involved in one way or another. One of the things was when uh, I was first married, the first time uh, that um, I wanted to bring back uh, that feeling at Christmas time where. What I felt one feels connected to the people around you, and I felt early on that um, I needed to do something in service that would make that sense of community and make Christmas more meaningful for me. And um, so I just that that the first thing I did was play a local club, and admission into the club would be a toy. And then I would give this these boxes of toys, uh, toys for tots. And then uh, one thing led to another. And one year, probably with too much adrenaline, I decided to play every club in Santa Barbara on the same night. And um, an admission into a club and some restaurants would be uh, toys. And so in process, I had two bands leapfrogging from club to club, and I would just go from one place to another. And by the morning, I I played the the last of the better clubs in town. And I had a a woman um, uh, who was uh, still Tellefson, who runs uh, an organization at the time called the Council of Christmas Cheer, and came up to me as I was leaving the last club and said, do you ever watch and see where you're, where the money goes? And I said, well, no, I just deliver my, you know, have my toys delivered to uh, toys for tots. And she said, well, that's really good. But because toys for tots is a national organization, most of those toys will be shipped out of Santa Barbara. And um, she said, if you want to do something that's more direct for Santa Barbara, come look, see what we're doing. With the council, and she t- took me to a, a shipping container. She was telling me that the the way it had worked, there were so many organizations around all doing the same thing. And I said, "Let's get everybody to work together." There's a novel idea. Instead of waiting for the same dollars and the same people, let's start a database. You keep track 
who they are, how many kids they've got, who are they, who are they serving? Then you can get the appropriate goods that you need for the people that, you know, how many kids they have, what are the ages? And then maybe we don't duplicate so many people and eliminate people, you know, let everybody get served. So anyway, one thing led to another. And I met, I hooked up with some famous friends and the fellow that local TV station, Bob Smith. And he said, let's do a telethon. So telethon, I renamed it because I wanted everybody to work together. My naive, you know, 20 something self. And, uh, so that's how I got involved in, in creating a thing. We're, originally, we called it Christmas Unity. And then when we realized that we could serve the people in need the entire year, um, then we just shortened Unity and stuck. And it's become the premier organization for Santa Barbara and Santa Barbara community. Everybody who's anybody gets involved with Unity Christmas season, which is our and uh, and that's our primary fundraising time. I brought some people who I met with the um, at the time it was the biggest telethon in the world, Children's Network Telethon. And Joe Lake was one of the founders, and so Joe graciously came to Santa Barbara to teach us how to do that. And uh, one thing led to another. So long story, or long story longer, I we are in our thirty thing year. And I've been doing this pretty much regularly with a, some version of the telethon every year. Well, I dropped out during a divorce or two. Yeah. Well, that, that was, that was the vibe that I got that day was this was not your first rodeo, like giving back is something that's a part of you. It was not like a publicity stunt. It was something that really is organically a part of you. And, and as I'm listening to you, I'm wondering that leadership and organizational skills that you had that you brought to this to make it more efficient is that something are those qualities that you have as an artist that you had kind of even when you were kind of starting out that you think helped you maybe do better than other people because i i think a lot of people i see it in my business they think it's the talent and it is but it's also you know how, yeah. what are your business skills? What are your, uh, you know, how do you organize things? How, is that something that you've always had or have you gotten better at that? No, I, I wouldn't say I have business laughing right now. If they heard you, it's, it's, it's more like just to me, it's kind of logic, you know, it's sort of, well, how, how this work? And then we, and then I bring the right people in and we jam on that who have business shops and they want to be a part of it. And they just need to be invited. I'm more the galvanizing force that can bring people together. Yeah. And, and that's how I make records. I'm, I'm a collaborator. And um, I started with Jimmy Messina in 1971. And, uh, and we collaborated artistically and on a couple of tunes that did well. And then from there, I went and collaborated with piano player because... I wrote pretty simply folky on guitar and I started hearing that I didn't know how to play. So I realized that I needed keyboard players. So I worked with David Foster and I worked with McDonald and I worked with different who brought different that I imagine and hear in my imagination, but how to actually play. 
which is why when I go to parties now and people say, will you play the play? And I go, no, no, I don't know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that, I wanted to ask you about, about uh, Jim Messina because it's always, you know, Loggins and Messina, Loggins and Messina. And it sounds like it was something that was, you know, established. But what I, what I uh, had read was originally he was producing your album and then it kind of organically came about. And I'm just wondering how that came about. And then Clive Davis's uh, you, you know, his influence on saying you guys should go play together. I don't know how much of that is true, not true. I'm just wondering your take on, on like how, how the collaboration comes about. I think it's, it's good for people to hear. It's not so, it's not like A to B to C. Sometimes things shock you and things come out of the woodworks that you wouldn't have expected. Yeah. Well, I, I wasn't imagining a duo. Um, I thought that you know, I was 21 when we met and um, thought that I was ready to go solo. Looking back on it, I, I now know I wasn't. So it was Grace that brought us together as a duo. Um, but Jimmy was looking to be a producer and not an artist. And then as he showed me his tunes, um, we started to work a couple of them up. And then next thing I know, he showed me a couple things that it was obvious that he should be singing. So um, I think he sort of began to realize we should be a duo before I realized it. So he was trying these things on. How do we sound together? And, you know, with this. And, and of course, um, and that act six years, but when we made the album, it's called logins with Jimmy sitting in. And the idea was that would be an introductory album for me. And then he would produce the next record as a solo record. But Clive Davis, when he first record, he was the president of Columbia Records. And when he heard the first record, he said, no way am I releasing the album of a band that's about up. He said, so I want a, I want a six-year commitment. I won't release it in it. And so we went, sure, Were 21, 20 years old. At, at that age, though, with ego involved and everything, were you kind of bummed out? Like, hey, wait a second, this was going to be my thing. Or was it a welcome, like, oh, okay, let's just go with whatever's working right now. Like, how, how was that dynamic? Was it one that you guys were happy with? Or was it one where you were like, yeah, okay, we got to do this for six years because that's what Clive Davis is telling us and we want to get in. And that, it, it, I mean, was it a, I would imagine it had to have, some merit to it for you guys to have produced what you did over those years. But what, what was oh, that? Yeah. No, it, it absolutely did. We, we enjoyed working together. We enjoyed the synergy of our voices and our writing. And, um, and it was a why not moment. It was like, okay, I hadn't actually planned on it, but, but why not? It's like, feels good. The music's good. Uh, there's definitely a vibe. I could tell right from the beginning that we had something unique. And you wait as you dream of having something special that sets you apart from us and just sort of was delivered to me. It was like, okay, here we go. Jimmy's got the Buffalo Springfield and Poco cred. So that made it really cool. People were, I remember the first time I heard our music on the radio and the DJ says, well, I know who Messina is because of Poco and Buffalo Springfield, but who Kenny Loggins guy? So I picked up the phone and I called the station. And said, "So here's who I am." <laughs> like, 
and uh, and he got a kick out of that. That's in great. those days, live DJs. Well, let let me ask you about that because you know that was one of my questions was, you know. I, you know, now know you, I mean, we could get into it, but I mean, I know your music from, you know, some of my favorite movies of all times and everything. So you're kind of, you're Kenny Loggins, you know, up here, but at some point you were just this kid that liked music and wanted to play. So what I'm wondering is like, what was the, what was the transition? Like, when did you realize like, huh, I got something here. And like, did people encourage you early on? Did you see what you eventually, you know, you have, you have done so much and I'm wondering how early on you thought, yes, I'm here. I'm on the scene. Like to have the, you know, the cojones to get on the the phone at 21 and go like, this is who Kenny Loggins is. You had some self-possession. I'm just wondering, did that come from your parents? Did it come from, and, and when did that come about for you? I think I'm a big believer in mental connection. Um, my dad was very my solid, but my dad was really my primary supporter. And I think what we get from our fathers is a sense of ourselves out in the world. I think what we get from our mothers is an inner sense. So if we, we feel loved and supported and accepted, that moves the inside and you get that inner sense of self. Ability to take that out into the world, I think, is is a father connection, and and my dad was my biggest fan. My dad really wanted to be in show business. He was young. He came was from Seattle to Seattle at the end of the depression, or from Seattle to L.A. And one of his buddies had somehow gotten into the movie business. So my dad actually publicity pictures or promo pictures, you know, the, some way of, and he looks like he's got this sort of Basil Rathbone thing going on with a pipe and, or Bing Crosby, you know, it's like very smooth. Oak. The smoke is curling up, you know, from the pipe and <laughs> that whole look about him. It's I always, uh, he was the guy, he said, oh, that was just some friend with a camera. I said, right. You in white bucks and a white suit hanging out and with a camera and pro lighting dad. That's so funny. I think he actually had a show dream of some that I got to hold and carry for him. He enjoyed the fact that I was going for it. I remember when I was dropping out of college, second year of college, and I said, taking um, what was then called telecommunications, radio and TV announcing. And, um, And it was because it was a fallback. My dad had said to me, you need something to fall back on. That's a dad thing. Yeah. And, uh, and so I was doing this thing that I really didn't enjoy. And, and um, I remember going to him, it suddenly dawned on me. And I said, dad, I'm spending none of my time studying something I don't want to do. And 10% of my time doing it, doing what I want to do. And I said, I really want to turn that around. <laughs> you know, So I dropped out of school and, and started listening. And um, I think I knew that show business is a high turnover gig and that we, they just eat us up and spit us out as quick as they can. So you, you, you know, you'll get a turn and what are you going to do with that turn is the question. Yeah. And 
so that's that was me i just kept writing i kept auditioning going to going to different parties as a songwriter i made 100 bucks a week and i would go to different parties in hollywood because there were tons of singer songwriters and we'd all sit in a circle with our guitars and take turns and uh, so that's how I a lot about their writers and performers in in the Laurel Canyon world. Wow how how old were you at that point? That was late teens, early twenties. Uh, I'd say that was probably nineteen twenty. No, not the year nineteen twenty, but nineteen <laughs> years old. That yeah. that makes me think of uh, the movie, uh, the sh- the book. I think I have it over here. Easy Riders, Raging Bulls, which is more, you know, kind of the Hollywood, the 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 movie side of things. But uh, what an incredible time to be in Hollywood! Uh, just so much going on. Um, how how did that? You know, the, the one of the one of the kind of the titles that you picked up along the way was this like the king of the movie soundtrack title. And and you have, um, you were nominated for an Oscar. Uh, you, you got, you got Footloose, Top Gun, Caddyshack. I mean, just like some of the, to me, some of these great movies that I've seen over and over again. Um, was that, did that come about, uh, as a result of being in the Hollywood scene and just relationships were those songs, I mean, this is, well, first, I guess we could start with that. Then I want to ask you a little bit about how it worked with you with writing songs for these films. Okay. Well, um, I think uh, uh, I have to give a nod to Barbara Streisand for helping me start that whole thing. I hadn't really planned on doing that. It wasn't something I went after, but Barbara was making Stars Born. And her boyfriend at the time was uh, John um, Peters. And, um, so I got an invitation from Barbara to come to her house in Malibu and show her anything that I have that might be appropriate for stars born. And at that time I was working on uh, my first solo album and I was writing songs, write me home. And, um, and so I showed her beginnings of song ideas, little bits and pieces that I had. And I showed her the opening of a thing I was working on, Believe in Love. And she really loved that and felt that that was appropriate for her in the movie. But in the past, I became friends with John, Peter. So when Barbara and John broke up, John then did his first solo project, which was Caddyshack. So he called me in the making of Caddyshack and said, I need you to come here, see the screening and, and write something for my movie. So one thing leads to another. So it really is very much the, the people you meet and the connections you make. And, and so I saw stars born, laughed my ass off and wanted to write the song I could for the movie. And that before pop music was really accepted in movies, it was just at the very beginning of that movement. And, um, he hadn't really thought of Jack as something that would have 12 different artists singing pop tunes in it. He just wanted a theme. And so I wrote, I'm all right. I, when I saw the screening, there was no gopher in the movie. And and really, yeah. And he said to me, uh, there's going to be like sort of a gopher puppet. It'll pop up and do a dance. It's going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds pretty stupid, but (laughs) 
Oh my God. That work amazingly well, but we didn't any of that coming. That is so, that was my question was, did you have the songs already? And then they asked to put them in the film or did you watch the screening and you get inspired by it? Uh, I'm laughing as I'm listening to you because I just wrote a book that'll come out later this year. And, and I actually have a whole reference to Caddyshack in the book. I'm just realizing as we're talking, that was one of those, that was one of those movies in college that was kind of on a loop. And, and actually Top Gun was another one. They were like, they were on a loop in the dorms. Like I, I could probably quote both of those front to back. And so you're, your music being a part of it. Um, how does that work for you? You watch the film and it just kind of, it, was it like you would pull out old tunes that you had, or was it newly inspired just from watching it? Like, like danger zone, for example, what, how did That's that? I want to tell you the Caddyshack story just yeah. to finish that up. Yeah. Because in those days, and, and it's maybe somewhat still, but nowadays they, it's a different thing. But in those days, um, they had temp music, which is short for temporary music. The director picked the kind of music he wanted in each of the scenes. And then as a writer, you try to capture the spirit of that music. The opening of the movie with the credits is Danny, the lead character, the boy, on his bicycle riding through a a housing development of some kind, a pretty middle class kind of thing. And the music he had was done doing serve somebody and and i thought why is he putting dylan over this guy so i assumed that that sort of rebellious angry rebel kind of vibe to that character but then when the character comes on screen screen he's he's very much a he's trying to figure out who he is it's a coming of age story and he's not yet the rebel he doesn't become the rebel until the end of the movie so for John, somebody was foreshadowing his character. So I figured my song had to have somewhat of that attitude, even though the character wasn't developed yet. So I'm all right. Don't nobody worry about me. You know, why do you have to give me a lot of shit? Leave me alone. And that became his theme. Although later on, the gopher would it. I didn't know that. But, yeah. but, but so for me, it was my Dylan thing and just a little subtext there. Um, at that time, there was a band called Steelers Week, which Jerry would be build a solo career out of that. They had a song called Stuck in the Middle with You. I don't do something right. Yeah. And it's Rafferty imitating Dylan. So when I got in the studio, I thought, shit, if they can do it, I can do it. So I had to imitate Rafferty imitating Dylan. And that, so I'm all right, but it worked me. It was that sort of my character voice for that era of my career. And, um, and it worked, you know. And the other, the other movies then were invitation because of Caddyshack and the right. success that I'm all right had. Uh, but, but Footloose is a screenplay that was written by a friend of mine who was a lyricist that I would work with, Dean. And he'd written a screenplay and he handed it to me and said, would you check this out and maybe write a song or two with me? This was before it had been picked up. And um, I always tell interviewers when, especially when I'm in the States, 
to have a friend hand you a screenplay is not a weird to happen. And the, and the cab driver hands you a screen, you're getting out of the cab. Yeah. And so, so for me, it was like, okay, sure. I'll check it out. And I guess a month later I read it and I always tell him it wasn't gone with the wind, but it was certainly interesting enough to say, yeah, as a favor to a friend, let's sit down and write a song. And I had the right, uh, Renat Amar, the uh, footloose um, chorus melody already had. So we started jamming on that. And uh, and it was really a melody like what I do as an artist. So it's kind of throwaway. So let's just throw it over here to me and see what happens. And uh, I'm getting all kinds of signs going off in my, in my computer. Um, um, so we, so Dean and I sat down and we worked up Footloose and we for what we thought was the barroom scene, middle of the screenplay. And later on, when I went to the uh, premiere, they opened the movie with it, with the whole feet, the slips of the feet. And Dean and I were howling with laughter. It was like, oh, got a fucking slam here. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, And so that was the beginning of that whole thing. And then um, with Danger Zone, um, I wasn't actually supposed to be the singer of that song. Jim Marauder had written the bulk song. And um, there, they had a couple different artists that were vying to be the singers. Starship was from, uh, uh, REO Speedwagon was one of them. Um, Toto was one of them. They were all sort of negotiating. And think that the owners negotiated them all out of the deal because on the street recording uh, the the um the casting of the music was done through a cattle call in hollywood a cattle call is where he shows up they just basically send the word out to all the top artists come see a screening we need songs and um i'd already come from footloose and although sometimes I get this all turned around and time-wise, but I'm pretty sure I'd already come from Footloose and, and uh, um, Caddyshack. So I got invited into a cattle call of maybe 10 artists watching a screening. And this was supposed to be a break for a new young artist named Tom Cruise. And so everybody was very excited at the possibility of this being a big film. Right. And it, uh, it was Bruckheimer Simpson. Uh, and so, um, I watched the screening tell everybody was chomping at the bit for the openings of the planes and the carriers and the whole thing. And, um, and so I said, I told my collaborator, I said, this is ignore that. Let's find a scene that we know we'll get in on. And so the volleyball scene, nobody give a shit about that. So we, we wrote for that scene. Well, the female wrote, audience gave a shit about that later on. <laughs> yeah, we forgot about it. But uh, uh, we wrote a song called Playing With The Boys. So I'm in the studio recording Playing With The Boys when I get a call that Giorgio has to meet about, about his Danger Zone song because he's supposed, to do a, he's supposed to dub it in in two days and they don't have a singer. And so they heard I was already in the studio already writing for the movie, come on in and sing this. So I listened to the song and I said, 
it's a cool song. I needed an up-tempo. I need a rocker. But this needs a little work. And so I, I tweaked it around. I tweaked chordally. I tweaked it melodically, And I added some lyric here and there. And um, in that way, I stepped into Danger Zone. It's an incredibly lucky moment in my life. And so I got involved one, two, three in three of the most iconic movies of that era. And they still are heavily rented. We are supported by Poopery. If you got to go, but you don't want the whole house to know you just went, you know what I'm talking about. Come on, fess up. That's why we have Poopery. Simply spray the bowl before you go and a layer of essential oils traps bathroom odor before it begins. Sound crazy? Sure. But guess what? It works. In fact, they guarantee it. It's available in a variety of scents and sizes so that every bathroom is stocked. And now Poopery offers hand sanitizer too, a moisturizing blend of coconut and lavender that kills 99.9% of germs in 15 seconds. But it's not just about the bathroom odor. Here's why I love it and endorse it. Poopery liberates everyone from toxic thoughts and ingredients, not just the product, the company. That's their mantra. They do so much more for their community. 10% of profits are being donated to Texas charities and additional quantities are being donated donated to medical professionals in need. And now for 10,000 Nose listeners, you can use code DelNegro15 for 15% off your next order of $25 or more when you check out at poopery.com. Again, that code is DelNegro15. And now back to the show. Love all those stories though. It's so cool to hear that the behind the scenes on stuff that I kind of grew up with. It's, it's really, really cool for me. Um, I want to go back to something you said earlier when I asked you about giving back and you said, I like that feeling of, of connection and, and Christmas and being around people. I was thinking, uh, and I don't, I don't actually really know this about you. Were you touring a lot? And if so, were you like city to city? And I know how it is for me, if I'm filming, even, even that show that I was, the, doing with Kevin is in New York. So I was away from my family and kind of, it's like you have when you're on location somewhere, it's like, there's no gravity in certain ways. You're kind of disconnected from your normal life. And I'm just wondering one, if you were touring a lot or if that wasn't really a part of your bread and butter. And if you were, how did that, uh, how how did that affect you? Because I know people go like, oh, it's so glamorous. You, you know, he's a rock star. He's doing all this. But it's like when you really break it down day to day and you're like pulling into a new town, playing, packing up your stuff, going, how did that affect a guy who seems like intrinsically wants to be connected and rooted and grounded? Um, well, I'd already done six years with Loggins and Messina where the movies came along. Um, we toured a lot at the beginning where I didn't have a significant other. Um, we toured a lot, you know, 200 shows in a year, like that kind of crazy schedule. Wow. And then um, gradually got married and attempted to settle down that schedule up considerably, but still a long time on the road. And I think it, it, it definitely contributed to the demise of marriage. Um, but it, it's a schizophrenic lifestyle because it is what I always dreamed of, part of being the rock star, just being out on the road performing. And, um, and the subsequent, um, um, I'm looking for uh, the right word, but they, um, they, 
um, give me one second. Um, uh, that the road provides. That what was it? You, gl- you glitched out on me, so I actually didn't hear the word. What was the word? Well, the subsequent distractions that happen on the road that can add to the demise of a marriage. You know, I had, we had, and, um, and 15 years. Um, and so that took me right up through the eighties and, um, and before somewhat and, um, on into the nineties. Right. So it was a, a good chunk of time. Uh, but very difficult to reconcile the the differences between traveling and being home. And you, um, um, but but being on the road was my primary source of income. Yeah. Uh, so it was part of the reality. And the more children you have, the more income you need. Yeah. W- was it like in the beginning, I'm sure... Obviously, when you're young and single, it's got to be awesome. It's got to be such an adventure. And was there any point where it kind of got to be uh, draining on you to the point of just like isolation and and kind of? I, I would imagine it's weird. You know, you're 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 famous at that point, so people are coming at you. You're um, you're in a new place. You're not sure what people want from you. They they want your performance, but do they really know you? What was it disconcerting, or did you have a way of like of grounding yourself within all that nuttiness? Yeah. Well, right off the top, uh, I learned to meditate, and uh, and from uh, people that were working with the Maharishi, and uh, back in the Beatle days and the, the boy days, and. Um, and some of my best friends from college meditators. So they took me under their wing and I started meditating from the beginning because it was, it was emotionally taxing uh, to have that sudden stardom. Um, You know, so like we were talking about earlier, going from just being a kid uh, from Malham to suddenly playing the rock star and really in my head, the way, so many others. Um, and maybe that's because I had such a good relationship with dad and my mom, but it was my dad being, a, you know, a, a, a traveling salesman in him, fairly successful at what he did. And, um, and that helps um, a good, good parental relationships help, helps your stay solid. Um, and I think that was the beginning of, of moving out into the world that was playful. The, me imagining that I was, it was more like a something, you know, it was just something that I would do. I remember being backstage one time with a buddy of mine and uh, back in my city college days uh, back. So I'm on stage with him about to go on there's maybe 7,000 people there. And I said, watch this. And the curtain goes up and I walk out onto the stage. People all go, <sighs> and I look back at him and go, that was <laughs> fun, wasn't it? Check this out. And 
So it's all the, and, and he and I used to just go up into the sand mountains, get stoned and sit guitars all day. And all, all of a sudden the dream is reality. It's like, wow. Head, your head's been. Well, you've, you've mentioned your dad a couple of times and, um, I wanted to ask you about this is it. I, I, I don't know. Again, you read stuff on the internet. You don't know if it's true, but I, you know, what I had read was that that was kind of an ode to your dad as he was not doing so well. And then it ended up becoming this kind of, again, another iconic piece of music that was related to, you know, uh, sports, I think NBC sports, all of that. Tell us a little bit about that song and where that came from, if that's even true and how that related to your dad. Well, it's very true, actually. Um, That Mike McDonald and I were working on that was the second song we worked on together. The first one was What a Fool Believes. And so knew that there was synergy that happens when we write together, but we hadn't fully explored that. And we were working on that melody that came late. Um, but we didn't have a title and we sure what the lyric was going to do. And we'd been kicking around lyric ideas, but nothing was very satisfying. And then went to visit that in the hospital. Um, and he was having major surgery. And I remember him telling me that he was prepared to die on the operating table. And I thought, well, that's bullshit. I mean, why do you think you're going to die? And it's like, there's, there's no good reason for that. And I went from that hospital visit to, uh, to work with Michael. And we started going through the song. All of a sudden, the idea of making a choice you, you make an inner choice for what's going to happen in your life. And that be the premise of the song. And when we got to the line and we were da 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 which is very Michael. And each time we would hit da-da-da, we would hang on to different phrases. And then I hit, this is it. And at first, Mike looked at me and went, really, that's, that's it? That's the, the thing we're going to say? Because it seemed odd. It wasn't like... Announced this thing that was like something you say every day. And I said, yeah, I don't think there's any other way to put it. You know, it's gotta be, this is it. This is the moment. And, and it held. And the next thing, you know, they're using it for playoffs, you know, Uh, one thing led to another people had adopted the song. And I think they adopted it because they felt the lyric and the, the emotion of the lyric resonating in their own lives. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's incredible to hear. And I feel like it's so appropriate for what we're going through right now. It's like, here it is. This is this is the deal. What are you going to do about it? You know, and, and you know, where, whether it applies to sports where it's like, OK, you're down to the wire. This is it. Are you going to pull it all together and hit that shot or it's in your life? Uh, that's that's right. re- really cool. Just to be um, accurate with that. Sports is still just a metaphor. That, it's still, it's still that a what? Sports is not, it, it's a metaphor. It's not the meaning of the sentence. It's not the meaning of the sentence. It's, sports is also a metaphor, just as the song is a metaphor. The real deal is the moment we're in. You know, to, to be able to step back and go, wait a minute, this is actually happening. And I have to respond to this in a rational, co-creative way. 
um, the fear can be crippling. And so how do I with the fear? Do I do I close in on it? Do I ignore it like many people are doing and say, well, I'm not going to let it mess with my life. I'm just going to keep going. That's called denial. And it won't necessarily serve a whole lot of people. Um, am I going to get terrified and not respond? Well, you make a choice, you know, and with, with I have five children, one grandchild. We're all we're not cohabitating, but we're all you know, in this together. And, uh, and, but there's a part of me as that's always scanning to see how everybody's doing. And I'm assuming you're a parent now, right? I am. Yeah. I got two kids. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a part of you that's always checking on them, even not cognizant of it. And you'll see that emerge as older and longer, always in the house. And when they're out, there's a part of your psyche that's still checking. So to have this virus around where I don't know how they're doing. So I'm initiating once a week, we all do a, a Skype call. Um, I'm initiating phone calls. I'm checking in all the time. They're worried about me. And I work hard at worrying about me. <laughs> I'm more worried about them. And yeah. that's just the nature. You know, this is yeah. it. I appreciate you pointing that out. I was yeah. thinking more celebrate me home. What were you thinking more? Celebrate me home. Ah. As, as a thematic piece for this, that, that to acknowledge the connectedness and the, the, little silver thread that we're each hanging by, you know, that at any moment we could lose someone we love. Yeah, it really is. It really is scary. I, I, um, did I lose connection and can you still hear me? Okay. I, I, uh, have been doing these Instagram lives with people just as a reaction to this. And there was a, a guy that a doctor here in LA, who's a breach doctor, who's worked with a bunch of actresses and, uh, helping them and, and others, but it just, he's kind of known in this world. Um, and I interviewed him in 2017 for this podcast, uh, Dr. Berlin, Elliot Berlin, and he was, um, diagnosed with COVID and he recovered and we did this little interview yesterday and I didn't realize to the degree he was in the ICU and he kind of walked me through what he went through. Uh, he said he was sobbing, you know, all night at one point because he was isolated in this room. And that feeling of, yes, that could be any of us. Uh, it's so, you know, I feel like I don't know if this is because as as an actor, you have to be cognizant of this or or because, you know, even just my existence is very it's kind of you don't know what the next job is going to be, where you're going to go. But I'm always very aware of like the uncertainty in my life. Um, I feel like this situation I think a lot of people lie to themselves that they have it all figured out, whether they have their money in their house and their whatever. And they think I got it all zipped up. And I think this whole situation has just brought it right to everybody's doorstep that like, no, there is no certainty. There is no guarantee. You, you, every day is a gift, you know, 
And and right now it's front and foremost in everybody's mind because it's just so uh, present. And and I didn't even really mean to talk about that because I don't know when I'll release this. I didn't even mean to really even talk about this, but how can you not? And I love that it relates to your music that you wrote years ago. And it's just, if you, if you stumble upon a truth in your art, it, it will have that lasting effect, you know? So you wrote that song. I don't even know what that was in the, in the eighties, maybe with it. Uh, this is it. And celebrate me home or this is it. Celebrate me home was when, when was celebrate me home? Either way, they're both. It's not like you wrote them last month. 76, 77. Yeah. And here we are, how many years later talking about it, and it's so applicable. And I think that's kind of the beauty of art and expression is that if you stumble upon some truth, it it's going to apply to right now and it's going to apply forever if you did it, if you did it, you know, in a, in a way that had integrity. Yeah. Um, or, or just universality of a, an emotion. You know, as a writer, I try to come close to the bone with the truth writing about it's got to be person, which then becomes universal. Uh, if I try to write your story, it's much more difficult to write something that everyone else is going to go, oh, right. But if I write my story and I really nail it and I go to the parts that are uncomfortable, it seems to then apply to everybody. Whether it's a love song, you know, we all have that as a universal experience or something about the pain of what I'm going through, like this is it. Um, you know, it's the it's my goal as a writer to try and find that thing that resonates. Yeah. I have an acting coach that would say that, about this, like, it's got to cost you something. And when it costs you something, the audience feels it and they can live vicariously through it. But if you just phone it in and you try to do something that looks like it, you know, you, you've manufactured it, there's some little, you know, innate kind of senses that people have that they, that's, I think, why they respond to certain songs or why they respond to certain performances or films or TV shows, because there's, there's, there's a, there's a, a sense of it costing the artist something to tell that or to express that in some way. Uh, um, yeah, actually, oh, a, go ahead. Well, oh, well there remind well, me a quick side, side note of that I had, uh, uh inadvertently, uh, well, I'll, I'll make the long story short, but it's a pretty funny story some other time. But anyway, I was, I was on an interview uh, early in the morning. I was stoned out of my mind by accident in something that I wasn't supposed to eat. And, and the interviewer says right off the top, is, uh, I always wanted to ask a, a legitimate songwriter, why do some songs last forever? And some songs just seem to go away right away. And I thought about it. And because I was incredibly high, I said, I think the ones tell the truth are the ones that last. And there's this pop. And then he goes, so Lou told the truth? And another pause. And I said, well, to some people. <laughs> and it has said forever. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think I think that is... 
That is right. I mean, what I'm interested in and how you came about with like, for example, with this is it, when you said you guys were working, you and McDonald were working, you're at the hospital, you come there and it, and the phrase found its way into the music. I interviewed, uh, I don't know if you know him, Chip Taylor, but he wrote, uh, angel in the morning and, and wild thing. And he, I, at one point I said, I said something, I said something like, so you know, you write these poems and put them to music. And he's like, no, 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 I got to stop you right there. He said, that's not how it works for me. He said, I have these, these melodies, these, they come to me and I can grasp for them. He said, and then sometimes they'll just hook into me and it's almost like garbled out words. And then something comes to me and it finds its way organically. It was very instinctive for him. And it sounds like, I don't know if that's always how it is for you, but it sounds like maybe there's a little bit of that for you as well. I'm just wondering, is it always the same or do different songs get written differently? I think that we are accompanied, the the songwriters that I know that are, are lifers, we're, we seem to be accompanied by a muse. There's a certain muse that hangs out with me and... Um, and he or she or it prefers it if I can say something that matters. The craft of me is like, oh, well, it rhymes with that and this will work. And there's a part of me that goes, no, let's just let's just get in here and write as good a song as we can. And then at some point, the muse comes in and writes a couple of lines for me. And everything starts to hinge from that. You know, it's like those are the technicolor words that. And, and then and then you go, ah, oh, I get it. I was writing a song recently uh, for children's hospitals as a theme song to a closed circuit TV station. And they wanted something that was, this is going to be a wonderful day. So they want a real upbeat start of the day. Kids are sick in the hospital. They want to see their, their channel, which is mostly animals in the zoo or animals in the world. And the theme song had something to do with, this is going to be a great day. And in the middle of the verse, as we're jamming on the melody and what the melody could be here, and all of a sudden this lyric comes through, you've got to be brave like a lion, strong like a tiger. And we all, there were three of us writing, and we all, because it just came out like that. And we all stopped and went, holy shit. That's the song. And the, um, <laughs> the emotion that accompanied those words was a more correct than this is going to be a day. Because if you're a kid that's sick in the hospital and you don't know whether you're going to live or not, this may not be perceived as a wonderful day. But the challenge to be brave was the pivotal moment that made that song work. And that didn't come from my intellect. So I, I, I give the credit to my muse because at that moment, everything changed. That, that is just, thank you for sharing that. And for that is, uh, really uh, kind of that was really uh it just it, 
to experience you telling me that story was incredible. And, and with all of the glitches that are happening and how I can hear you, it's still, you just, you just, again, I mean, it's actually proving the point that I was talking about like two minutes ago. If it costs you something, the audience hooks in, I'm watching you. I'm talking to you. We have a lot of compromises and technical difficulties, but as you're telling that story and all of a sudden I didn't, I didn't know where you were going with it. I thought it was a funny story. And all of a sudden, whoo, the emotion hooks into you and I'm just riveted by what you're saying. I, I, I thank you for even sharing that. And it's, and it's also just the, the, the humanity you have in, in that you're writing this for these kids. And that, that's the other thing I'm thinking is like service, you know, whether you're writing a song or you're running a company service to whoever it is you're writing it for. Like you were thinking about those kids when you're writing it. You're not going like, oh yeah, I got this. Okay, when's the paycheck coming in? No, you're going, who are these kids I'm writing it for? And that's going to dictate how my art shows up to to uh, help them in some way. Like not like, it's not about Kenny Loggins writing another song. It's about these kids in the hospital. It just happens to be Kenny Loggins' talent that's going toward it. It's, it's really... Uh, just beautiful the way you just put that. Thank you. Um, I, I almost feel like now my I had another question that feels so like pales in comparison to that. But I, I was just going to ask you, I had seen, I didn't realize this, but I had seen, so it's a little gear shift. And then I want to let you go because we're almost at an hour and, I, and I, I know you have many things to do even in this state. But I saw that you performed at Live Aid. Now, is that the, it, is that, how huge was it? Like, what was that experience? Uh, just because I have it fresh in my mind also because of the, uh, I can't even think of the movie, Bohemian Rhapsody of last year. But, but you know, they, re they really kind of honed in on Live Aid being a big part of that, uh, that whole story. Was that, is that just a blip on the radar for you? Was that a big deal to you? Was that weird? You know, when you see the movie, it makes it like this grand thing. Or was that just another gig? What What was that experience like? Oh, it was, it was definitely a grand thing. I'd done We Are the World in L.A. And I thought that was a grand thing. And then Live Aid came along. And just as a performance piece, uh, it was huge. And um, Graham, Bill Graham was running the performance aspect. He was the guy on stage. And, um, and so it was run really, really well, really professionally. He was the guy with his people that invented the rotating stage concept where one band is set up on a riser, the riser is moved in, and they plug in the, the lines. And then they just unplug those lines, pull in another riser, everything's set up to go, plug in the lines again, just the exact same ports. So you can move one and act on and one act off in five minutes. And um, uh, I only did Footloose. That was the only thing I, uh, I performed that day. And Jeff Bridges was the one who announced me. And Jeff and I would go on to become friends. He's another Santa Barbara guy. Yeah. And ironically, he bought my home when I when I sold my home there. So, you know, this that's another circle that continues to go around. I love him. I love him. He's I, I, yeah, 
He's, he's got a yeah. great book. You know, that's just a side note, but there's a great book I read with him. It's like the 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 guru and the dude or something. It's him and his buddy who who you probably know as well. They talk about meditation and oh yeah, yeah, oh yeah, it's incredible. Um, what's that? I haven't read it. Uh, yeah, no, just a short little book, but it just it was full of a lot of truths in it. But um, so so when you were doing live aid, I mean, were you aware and cognizant of just how far the reach was with that? Was it surreal in any way? Was it more stage fright than normal or was it just kind of like any other? Well, yeah, I think, you know, definitely the adrenaline was pumping. Um, you, you got, you got one shot to deliver a performance and you know, you're going to be, you're, you're on a first class stage. You're going to be compared to the other acts around you. What, what is it that you're going to deliver? What do you have? And so there was, a lot of adrenaline, but at the same time, I knew I had a great band. I trusted my guys. We'd done it a thousand times. Just get out there. As long as everything works, you know, we're going to be okay. Yeah. Um, the interesting mo- memory for me was, well, first they had me doing a sort of uh, television broadcast for a couple hours of just, you know, announcing the different acts that were coming on. They just sort of threw me into a truck and said, have you ever done this? Do you want to do this? <laughs> Let's go. How was that? How was that? Was that cool? Or was that? that was, I actually had more adrenaline on that moment than I had on performing Footloose. And then at the end, when they brought a whole lot of artists back at the end to sing something, I don't know what the hell we sang now, but I remember, um, um, I, I don't remember her name. So maybe I'm not supposed to tell that story. But All right. One of the louder R&B performers that came out and was screaming scats, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. And she didn't know that her microphone was louder than God. And the, the guy mixing the sound couldn't find it. You know, so it just was like obliterating everything in the house. Oh. It's so funny you're saying that because this throughout this entire interview, I'm just going like the sound from my point of view is is so choppy that I'm going, I hope to God that his his voice memo works. And I feel like I, I'm seeing my sound waves. It seems like I'm screaming because of these things. So I, I hope everybody's getting to hear all this. Um I I I love this conversation. I have three questions that I usually end with and we, I feel like I've, I, this is an embarrassment of of riches already. So if you if you need to sign off, we can. If you want, I can give you these questions, and uh, it's it's totally your call. If you're if you let me know what your time frame is. I'm 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 good. I got like five more minutes. This time's out. Good. Okay. Cool. This is um, the first one. Is it just you know? And by the way a disclaimer. There's so many things that I'd love to talk to you about and, and sit down in the same room with you because the, the sound is killing me. But, um, but we got, I feel like what we covered, we covered. And one of the things on the show though, is, is 10,000 no's. I always ask the word no means what to you? (laughs) Um, it means no. I mean, (laughs) like that, it just, I, I learned early on when I was thinking about the show and what would be my no story. Um, I learned early on that you can't take that all too personally. Um, like I, I was rejected 
for the lead in um, in when it was being turned into a movie. Um, um, who was the director? Do you remember? What was I didn't his hear name? the name. I didn't hear the name of the film. You said it got cut hair. off from hair. Oh, hair. Oh, yeah. uh, so Michael Weller uh, wrote that. Um, because I did a play of his, uh, yeah. I can't remember who directed that. Let me look it up while you're talking. Yeah. Like Mario something or a uh, famous guy. I mean, I'm just embarrassed that I can't remember his name. I, I've actually got a very funny hair story. I won't tell now, but, uh, of my family, my dad, my dad making, oh, 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 Milos Foreman. Milos. Yeah. Milos. And, uh, and I did an audition for Milos. And he would sit at a long table, imagine a dining table or a big corporate table. He's sitting at one end and I'm sort of three or four chairs away from him. And, and he's at, but, but he's not talking to me. He's talking to his assistant who's circling the table and, and saying, Milos would like to know. <laughs> <laughs> and at one point after about a half an hour, he says, Milos wants to know <laughs> if you've danced. And, and I said, mm, because by that time I didn't want to have anything to do with it. <laughs> and, and Milos really speaks and he looks at me and he says, never mind. That was the end of it. <laughs> and that was it. It was like you were dismissed. <laughs> Most of the notes I received, I learned early on because it was somewhere I was not supposed to be uh, auditioning for bands that I would have gotten hidden in um, any number of those or, you know, showing up for some that was not really appropriate for who I was at that time. My favorite no story is right at the beginning when every time I would a uh, talent contest, I would lose. And at first it was mini crushing, but then I realized that the first act I lost to in a three day talent contest where the winners then come to the day and then the come to the next day, it's like this thing. And I was finally in the third day and some really strong instruments and very strong performers we lost to a group of four high school girls in black light hula doing a black light hula <laughs> in a talent contest. And uh, nowadays, the Me Too mood I feel day with that sucker, but right. you know, it was absurd. It was the, the level of absurdity that you had to dismiss. And another one was that I lost a talent contest to a guy that imitated Bob Dylan. So in uh, essence, I lost to Bob. <laughs> Which either way is okay. You know, exactly. It's absurd that I lost to a guy imitating someone with talent. Yeah. But, well, that's the, yeah, that's the thing I think of as you're saying it is like, yeah, you're, you're being, you're being uh, over overlooked, but by who? You know what I mean? It's like, who are those, who are those judges? Like who are the judges that decided to pick a guy who was imitating Bob Dylan, you know? And, so, and, and that's a, that's a great lesson for people to hear is like, don't get so down on it. Like, did you want that 
gig anyway. You know, like I'd, I'd rather be you than whoever that guy is that was imitating Bob Dylan. <laughs> I have a feeling you had a better career than him. You know what I mean? He, so, went, on, he, he went on to be a, a plumber, something like that, you know, exactly. a regular guy with a regular gig. Um, but, or who knows, maybe he went on to be well, let me ask uh, Bob you. Dylan for the rest <laughs> of his life. Exactly. Uh, the next one is, um, uh, do you have any kind of go-to mantra when everything falls apart? Is there, is there anything you go to, anything you fall back on? If not, that's fine. But if you do. Um, that, um, Well, as I said, I, I became a meditator in 1971. So I've been meditating my whole life. And that's much my, my go-to process. The end of the world moments would be um, like the, the end of both of my marriages, especially my second marriage, where I didn't see that coming. And, um, and how you how you handle that i think for me running became a really important thing i would run every day uh-huh. and hitting that half hour mark and having endorphins kick in save me and then my creativity i wrote about it and eventually made a, the what i call the divorce album where i went to nashville and collaborated with a lot of the uh, uh, artists there that i had ideas that i knew i needed to get out and um, and so that became a, a sort of a creative, cathartic thing to do. But uh, for me, the, the the meditation and running were the things that saved my life during that time. Yeah, That's and of course my kids. And your kids. And then the, the last the last question is, if if you could give your younger self advice, um, what age would you intervene, and what yeah. would the advice be? <laughs> um, good question. I I wish I said coming, and I'd, I'd want to sit with that for a while, and may yet. Um, there's so many versions of that answer um, because I have a daughter who is very much uh, headed into show business in some. Um, I want her to not believe her reviews, um, good ones, not the bad ones, especially not the bad ones. Um, the good ones are an illusion of who they think you are and not who you really are as an artist. Um, so it's very rare when a reviewer actually sees the art accurately. They might see the art accurately, which is okay, but the artist is always an enigma. I mean, some of my favorite artists are from guys that I think are pretty messed up and they are not who their art is. Um, I think women fall for that all the time. Oh, he's so sensitive. No, his music is, <laughs> but but he's not. <laughs> Be careful. Don't confuse the two. Don't confuse the message with the messenger. 
that's probably the ultimate advice right there. Wow. That's the first time I've gotten that. Uh, I, you know, you get a lot of really cool answers. Don't confuse the message with the messenger. That's look, I, Kenny, I, I, uh, I got to thank you so much. I, like I keep saying, I really hope that it all technically works out so people can hear this because even with the sometimes straining to even just, just to grasp what, what's being said, it's been amazing. And, and most of all, just your, you know, it's funny, you get a, you get a glimpse of someone for like two seconds. And and when I met you last year, it it was exactly what I said at the top of this, which is like, oh, that guy's, that guy's really, he's, you know, I'm sure he's got whatever his issues are, he's got them, but this guy's really like, he, he actually is here for these people. And I feel like you showed up here for this in a way that's uh, so gracious and generous. And I, I just, I really appreciate it. I know you're busy and I know you've kind of, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in awe of what you've accomplished, but I'm more moved by what you did here today with me. So I appreciate it, ma'am. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. What we do here is go back, 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 back. All right. We do it every week. Not going to stop this time. Top three takeaways. Number one, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. You know you'll get a turn. And what are you going to do with that turn is the question. I say it all the time. Stop complaining and start preparing. I love how simply Kenny expresses it here. So I'm going to leave it at that. Number two, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So it really is very much the, the people you meet and the connections you make. Now, please know that this quote is a little tongue in cheek. You do need to know your craft. You can't just skip the line if you haven't done the work. But the people you surround yourself with will drastically increase or decrease whatever gifts or progress you've created on your own. And if you think about Kenny's stories, he was always a human first. That's what led him to these people who also happen to be great collaborators, seeking out good people. Number three, don't believe the hype. I want her to not believe her reviews. Um, Good ones, not the bad ones, especially not the bad ones. It's never as good as they tell you or as bad as they tell you. It's somewhere in between. But more importantly, don't put the power in other people's hands. You know what you've done. Let that be the judge that you answer to, yourself or some higher power. Kenny talked about his muse. Some call it the universe or God or the creative unconscious. But don't place too much power in the hands of the critic. Okay. Kenny Loggins, thank you so much. As well as every one of you who's listening, remember, when we ask you to rate, review, and share this podcast, it's because we want to make a difference in more people's lives. So if that means you taking a minute to leave a review or take a screenshot on your phone and post it to your social media, by the way, always tag at 10,000 knows and at Maddie Dell on Instagram if you do that so we can thank you. That post can help someone. Any way you share is fine by us. You want to write us with feedback? We love that. Connect at 10,000knows.com. And remember, short Monday morsels at the beginning of the week or back here every Friday for the longer interviews. We will be here. All right. Have a great week and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.